You're listening to Revelation, God Wins, from Coram Deo Church, a gospel-centered missional church community in Omaha, Nebraska. For more information, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's scripture comes on Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 8, and all of chapter 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I had heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever." And he said to thee, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life 
and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Well, before we jump into Revelation, a few things. Um, first of all, I just want to honor and thank uh, our worship team. Has God not gifted us with some really good musicians? Uh, yeah, you can, you can thank them. I was just sitting back there enjoying uh, worship this morning, and I don't know if you pay attention, but we have just a whole stable of musicians that rotate through, and different people lead and play different instruments. And so, man, it's really, really amazing the diversity of gifting that God's given uh, to Coram Deo and the people who serve in that way and, and are the lead worshipers among us. And so I just want to thank you guys for the ways that you serve us. Um, secondly, uh, something cool this morning, uh, we have these booklets available for the first time. It's called This is Coram Deo. This is basically, we've taken all of our sort of uh, philosophy of ministry, what is this church about, how do we do things, what do we believe, how do you get connected, and try to put it all in one place, um, because until now it's been all scattered all over the place. And so uh, now you have one place where this essentially sort of introduces you to the church that is Coram Deo. Uh, these are available this morning on the table in the back. And they're designed primarily for those of you who are newer to Coram Deo and maybe aren't connected yet and want to get a sense of who are we and what are we about and what does it mean to be connected and be a part of things here. Now, if you're already connected and you've been around for a while, I would love for you to take the time to enjoy the beautiful, full-color design uh, of this booklet. However, do not take one, all right? So enjoy it by looking at it and uh we'll let the people who are newer take them uh, if there's some left in weeks to come i don't mind if you take one but primarily we want this to be for those who are looking for just answers to questions about what is this church and how do i get connected all right so that's available this morning um exciting uh, work that's been done by our design team and i'm thankful for that as well uh, if you paid attention this week uh we mentioned on facebook that we would have a major announcement this morning you figured out from what dusty said that it does not have anything to do with a building unfortunately uh it's actually better than a building because it has to do with staffing and so since the end of last year uh we have been uh prayerfully aggressively looking for uh someone to join our pastoral staff and to lead alongside justin and dusty and myself as we lead our church in the mission of God. And we have uh, looked at both internal and external candidates. We've done a pretty broad and thorough search. And as a result of that process, uh, one of our own is actually going to make a vocational change and join us on staff at Coram Deo. And so I'm happy to announce this morning that Paul Gardner is going to join the staff of Coram Deo as of next month. Um, that's, yeah, you can clap about that. That's good news. Um, 
If you don't know Paul and Michelle, I brought a picture of their family. Um, this is Paul and Michelle and their kids, Rachel, Brianna, Joshua, and Isabella. They have been around Cormdale since the very beginning. They're part of the team that planted this church uh, from the beginning. And so we've known them for a long time. They lead one of our um, missional communities in Bellevue where God is doing some great things. Paul is currently a physical therapist. He's well-established in his career. Uh, he leads at a very high level in his work. And um, God's basically done some work in his heart to steer him in the direction of desiring to lead pastorally. And as we've seen the ways that God has used his gifting among his missional community and the leadership abilities that God's given him, it's just a perfect fit for some of what we need to lead the mission forward. And so Paul and Michelle are making a huge shift in the next month. Um, when Paul broke the news to his employer that he was going to transition, they had the whole conversation of, um, hey, what would we have to do to get you to stay? And when he told them, well, actually, I'm leaving for a job that pays less money, that kind of took away that. So they weren't sure what to do with that. It's hard to win that argument when you're uh, transitioning for something that pays less. Um, but Paul is, uh, is making a huge shift. His family's making a huge shift. And um, he, is, he and Michelle are both deacons right now. Uh, they'll, he'll continue in that role as he transitions. Um, he's a part of our sort of eldership training process. And so we anticipate that within the next year, um, he'll be installed as an elder, but he has to go through the same process everyone else does uh, for that pathway. And so I wanted to let you know that you'll get to know and hear from them a little bit more next month as they actually sort of step into this role. But I wanted you to know this morning so you can be praying, celebrating, and encouraging them if you know them. Um, obviously, big change uh, for their life. And, um, and so we want to just be able to pray for them and celebrate what God has done and especially how God has provided for our church in a really good way. It's really cool. Um, this was a funny month that we had. So we were trying to hire someone and basically, um, the people that we were looking at all made tons of money. And so we were like, Hey, would you take a significant pay cut and come work for us? Which wasn't working very well. But what was cool about that is I just realized, you know what? Uh, God's uh, given us a longing to hire the best leaders. And leaders who are really good leaders are usually leading well in other areas of their life, which means they make good money and they get promoted at work and they do good in their jobs. And so it's really neat that um, God has caused someone who has, has had a very successful career to this point and, and changed his desire and his calling so that he can come on board with us and really help to lead the mission of Coram Deo forward. So uh, Paul is actually going to take over the, the pastoral leadership and oversight of our whole missional community structure, developing and training leaders and multiplying missional communities. And then Justin Curtis, who's been serving in that role, is actually going to shift into more of kind of an executive pastoral role or operational role, uh, dealing with basically all the systems and structures and things like buildings and all of that stuff, which, which Justin does very well. And so it's going to maximize our strengths and our abilities to really focus our leadership well in various areas for the good of the mission God's given us. So would you join me just, let's pause for a minute. I'd like to lead us in prayer for Paul and Michelle before we dive into Revelation. God, we are thankful that you uh, call people to various things. Uh, we know that work is a calling, God, and so it's not more godly or more, um, even more useful, more glorifying to you for Paul to serve at a church than for him to be a physical therapist. Uh, both are vocations that honor you and glorify you. But we thank you that because of how you've gifted Paul and the desires you've given him, that you have led him to this shift. We want to pray for he and Michelle and their kids as they transition in the next six weeks or so. I want to pray that you would give a lot of grace uh, in that transition, that you would allow him to, to um, finish the course well in his current role, 
that you'd allow the significant relationships that he's created there um, to continue and that you would allow him to step in and begin to serve with us in the mission that you've given to Coram Deo in a very uh, direct and influential way. So uh, we thank you for the ways that you're at work in our community, in our city. Uh, We praise you for this calling in Paul's life and for the joy of getting to celebrate this with them. Thanks for uh, your good and the ways that you look out for Coram Deo and and just continue to bless us with really gifted and godly leaders. And so we're thankful. Uh, We give honor and glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's dive into the book of Revelation. We've come to the end. Uh, These are the last two chapters this morning of Revelation. And they are, in fact, two of the most important chapters of the Bible. If there are two chapters of your Bible that you need to know and meditate on and sink your teeth into, it is these last two chapters of Revelation. Let me let me tell you why. Uh, if we were to frame out the narrative arc of Scripture, and you hear us do this often, we speak in terms of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Those are sort of the four movements of the great act of God throughout history. And we read about creation primarily in Genesis 1 and 2. Then in Genesis 3, we have the fall. And so from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, we're dealing in the categories of fall and redemption. How has sin broken the world? How has God acted to redeem the world and, re- and redeem a people for himself? And then finally, in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, we read about the consummation, uh, the, the fulfillment of all things, the final coming of God's kingdom. And so um, really the bookends of the story are Genesis 1 and 2, and Revelation 21 and 22. And so because they form that sort of bookend to the whole narrative sweep of Scripture, these two chapters are very important. And we are only going to be able to scratch the surface this morning. We will certainly not do justice to the fullness of what is present in these chapters. I want to encourage you to meditate and think and reflect uh, on these things and soak in these chapters um, in your own personal reading of the Bible. But the point of these chapters... Really, if you were to step back and just say, okay, in the sweep of the biblical narrative, what what are these two chapters about? I think the point of these chapters is to awaken longing. Because it's true that what you long for determines what you live for. We said in the beginning, the very first sermon in Revelation, that human beings are teleological creatures. In other words, we all live for something. We're all oriented towards some goal, some end, some purpose. We've bought into some vision of the good life, and that is what our desires are aimed at. And so in the very first sermon on Revelation, I used this quote from James K.A. Smith. I want to remind you of it. He says, rather than being pushed by beliefs, we are pulled by a telos that we desire. An affective, sensible, even aesthetic picture of what the good life looks like. A vision of the good life captures our hearts and imaginations, not by providing a set of rules or ideas, but by painting a picture of what it looks like for us to flourish and live well. He speaks in terms of a vision of the good life, a picture of what life is about. What you long for determines what you live for. You've bought into some vision of the good life. You're animated by some desired future. And that's what's pulling you. That's what's orienting your existence. 
What you long for will determine what you live for. And, and here's the problem. Most of us have really weak longings. Our longings are not strong enough. But here's how C.S. Lewis observed it in his influential sermon titled The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward. So remember what we talked about last week, the idea that God promises to reward. And even in 22, in chapter 22 of Revelation, it says, I will recompense everyone according to their deeds. Okay. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You are far too easily pleased pleased. You're made to long for heaven, but instead what you settle for is some little slice of heaven on earth, whatever that means for you. So, so for some of you, your heaven on earth is career success or achievement. Now for some of you, it's the right relationship. If I was just in relationship with the right person, for some of you, it's healthy or successful kids. For some of you, it's some standard of living, some place I want to get to in life that I haven't attained yet. That's what you're after. That's the vision of the good life that you're pursuing. But that's not what you were made to long for. Another way to frame the metaphor would be this. Again, using the imagery of Revelation. We could say, God has spread for you a a banquet, a feast to end all feasts. But you're so full on peanut butter and jelly that you can't appreciate what that is. You have no longing, no hunger for what God offers. Uh, Lewis goes on to say this. If we are made for heaven, the desire for our proper place will already be in us, but not yet attached to the true object. Any earthly good on which our desire fixes, must be in some degree fallacious. He says, look, if we're made for heaven, then that desire is going to be present in us. It's just attached to the wrong thing. And so whatever you pursue on earth to fulfill that longing, what you're going to find is it doesn't. Uh, Let me go back to this illustration of hunger to flesh this out for you. Uh, Hunger is is a longing, right? I mean, I I crave food when I am hungry. It's a longing that begs to be fulfilled. Now, you can satisfy that longing with healthy, nutritious, delicious food, a well-balanced diet, or you can satisfy that longing with Twinkies, right? Some of you, that's your steady diet, right? Um, Ramen noodles, whatever it might be, okay? You can satisfy the longing with that, And, and if you... If you do that, the longing will go away, right? You will no longer be hungry. You can quench that desire, that longing. But I think we would all agree 
you haven't experienced the true consummation of that longing. You haven't experienced the fullness of how God designed that longing to be met in a diet that's full and balanced and robust. In the same way, all the pleasures of earth are but a foretaste and a shadow of the greater pleasures of new heavens, new earth. And so if you take the longings God has given you and you try to fill them with the stuff of this world, it's like eating Twinkies to try to satisfy your hunger. We've all done this, haven't we? We have a longing for companionship. And so you try to fill that longing by being in relationship with some certain person. And then once you get into that relationship, you realize this is good, but it doesn't complete me. It doesn't fill this longing. It doesn't actually take away. I mean, this person's great, but they, they can't complete me. Or, or we have a desire for pleasure. And so we pursue some experience where, okay, if I could just experience this, it would make me happy. And yet you experience that and, and the longing still remains. Those longings are all designed to point you to New heavens, new earth. They can't satisfy if they're filled with the things of this world. And see, Revelation 21 and 22 exists to awaken a fuller and a deeper and a more complete sense of longing in you. They're designed to show you this is what your longing is made for. This is why you have that longing in your soul that nothing in this world can fill. It's because it's designed to be fulfilled in God's eternal kingdom. This is the vision of the good life that you should be after. What we've been saying throughout this series, Revelation is a vision of the future that's meant to shape our living in the present. And so the Bible's telling you, look, here's the picture. Here's the vision you should be living for. And if you begin to live for that, it will shape and change how you live right now in the present. If you buy into this vision of the good life, it, it has implications for how you live right now. So let's look at the picture that this text paints for us. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Okay, remember that the sea in the Bible is a symbol of chaos and of oppression. Okay, and so this isn't saying there's no water in the new heavens and new earth. It's just saying the sea as a metaphor of chaos and uncertainty is gone. I want you to notice that even in the language God uses to describe the future, he's framing it in continuity with what you already know now. Right? If you listen to sort of folkloric Christianity, the way it talks is, well, here's your life on earth now, and where you're going in the future is heaven. And heaven is some ethereal, otherworldly place where you're going to float around naked on a cloud playing a harp. And that's not anybody's vision of a good time. Can we just agree? Like the reason none of you long for that is because no one wants to do that, right? And, and so if that's the vision that you have, you, you just sort of go, ah, eh, maybe not. But I want you to see in, in the language God uses, there's continuity between your experience now because it's new heavens, new earth, right? It's still heavens and earth, but renewed, perfected. There's continuity and discontinuity. 
So God's saying, look, everything you love, everything you enjoy, everything you delight in about the current earth, imagine all of that without the stain of sin and rebellion and wickedness and brokenness and poverty. Imagine if all that were gone. New heavens, new earth. There's continuity between your current experience and the vision God is painting of the future. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The whole picture of human history is human beings doing what we can to get to God. You see it as early as Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Let's build a tower to reach God. What we see in the new heavens and new earth is rather God coming down to be with people. Verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This has been the longing of every godly person ever since the Garden of Eden. I want to be with God. I want to experience communion with God. I want to know God. Right? Isn't it frustrating to you that your relationship with God now is marked by sort of distance? Right? Even though you've been reconciled to God in Christ, even though the Holy Spirit lives in you, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's distance in your relationship with God. Doesn't it frustrate you that you, you try to connect with God and talk with God and hear from God, and it seems like there's so much static in that relationship, like sometimes God is far off and you can't quite connect with God the way that you would like to? Revelation 21 is telling you, in the new heavens and new earth, God is with us. He dwells among us. The static in that relationship is no longer. We will know God. God will know us. There is a communion and a community between God and the people of God that does not now exist. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I mean, isn't this what we're after anyway? Isn't your whole life about insulating yourself from death, mourning, crying, pain? Isn't your whole life designed to create as much distance from those things as possible so that they can't touch you, so that you don't have to experience brokenness? And yet, no matter how much money you have, no matter how good of a family you live in, no matter how successful you are in life, you can't ultimately insulate yourself, can you? These things break in at one time or another. Someone dies. You lose a job. Your kids rebel. Your family disowns you. You you experience some component of crying and mourning and pain and the brokenness of the world. Even though nothing in you wants that and everything in your life is designed to insulate you from that, you can't escape the reality that that is life. But God says in the new heavens and new earth, no mourning, no crying, no pain. Do you know why? Because the former things have passed away. Because that's a mark of the world we currently live in. It's a mark of the fall. And when sin is done away with, and when there's a new and renewed heavens and earth, 
that will no longer be the state of reality. Verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, this is one of the greatest promises in the Bible, behold, I am making all things new. That's what Jesus says to you. I'm making all things new. I'm not out for just the salvation of your immortal soul. I'm out to make everything new. I'm out for a new and renewed creation. I am redeeming, restoring, putting back together everything that is broken. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Isn't it good that you have this in writing from the hand of Jesus himself? Hey, write this down. This is true. I am making all things new. This is not hoping, wishing, wish fulfillment. This is the very truth of God. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Notice again the family language. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In the new heavens and the new earth, in God's eternal kingdom, everyone there is holy. Everyone there loves and worships God. Everyone there has had the curse and the stain of sin removed so that they are holy and obedient. This is a world where you can send your kids down the street to play without worrying that there's someone dangerous. This is a world where you can leave your door unlocked at night and not wonder what's going to happen. This is a world where you can walk down the street at night and not be fearful or in danger. The rest of chapter 21 actually frames out in detail the sort of description of this new Jerusalem, this new city that comes down out of heaven. And what's interesting about the description is it, des- it describes the whole thing in multiples of 12. Everything's a multiple of 12. Why is that significant? Well, if you've paid attention so far in Revelation, you know that 12 is a number that symbolizes completeness. Right? There are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 apostles. There are 12 months in a calendar year. 12 is a number that symbolizes fullness or completeness or everything being as it should. And so everything in the New Jerusalem is described in multiples of 12 as a way of saying this city is perfect. Everything is harmonious. Everything is in balance. Everything is perfect. What's interesting is the dimensions of the New Jerusalem are described as a perfect cube. Here's why that's interesting, because in this temple that Solomon built in the Old Testament, the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God's presence came and dwelt, was cubic in its dimensions. And so it's as if the writer, John, is saying, hey, so take that holy place in the temple where God dwelt, blow that up a thousand times, that's what the new Jerusalem will be like. It's not just a little place where only the priest can go and only once a year and where there's smoke and fire. It's a huge city where all of the people of the earth who trust in and love and worship Jesus are present and living in the fullness of life that God intended. Uh, The dimensions that are given here are probably not literal. They're probably more symbolic. But just so you know, 
The New Jerusalem is 2 million square miles. 6,000 New York cities could fit in the New Jerusalem as it's described here. Okay? So in other words, this is a huge cultural center. This is not some itty-bitty little town where a few really, really good people get to live. This is a mass of redeemed humanity that God has called to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. There's plenty of space in the New Jerusalem for all the people of God in all the cultures of the world. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 21, verse 22, it says this, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. In other words, we don't need a physical place that represents the presence of God because God himself is present. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The description that's given here is of the kings of the earth bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem. This is a picture. It's a fulfillment of a prophecy in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It's a picture of all the cultures, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth, and all of that cultural heritage being reflected and represented in all of its redeemed goodness. The kingdom of God The new heavens and new earth are not the property of any one people, any one culture, any one race, any one subculture, but rather the fullness and the beauty of all of the human cultures on earth in their redeemed beauty will be reflected and represented in the new heavens and the new earth. If you like art, if you like language, if you like music, if you love experiencing all the artifacts of new and different cultures, you're going to love the new Jerusalem. In chapter 22, then, we shift from sort of this more tangible description of the city to to what you might say is a reference back to the book of Genesis. Look in chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, where's the last time in the Bible that you saw the tree of life? It's in Genesis chapter 3. The tree of life was present in the Garden of Eden. It symbolized God's presence. And in Genesis 3, when God cursed Adam and Eve for their disobedience, he said, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever, I'm going to expel them from the garden. And he placed an angel guarding the entrance to where the tree of life was. Now, at the consummation, at the renewal, new heavens and new earth, we see once again, the tree of life is here. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. This is a symbol of the presence of God, the beauty of God, everything being back in right harmony and order the way God intended for it to be. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, 
and his name will be on their foreheads. So here's a reference again. All through the book of Revelation, we've seen this language of your forehead being marked or your wrist being marked. And we've said that's not physical, but it's language that describes ownership and you belonging to someone. Okay, It's saying the citizens of this city are those who worship Jesus, those who belong to Jesus, those who have been called into God's people. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. So after painting this beautiful picture of the new heavens and new earth, after drawing all these images from cities, the city of Jerusalem, and from the Garden of Eden, now John begins to write this epilogue to the book, this sort of closing plea. Verse 6, he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And over and over again, as this book comes to its close, you see this repeated. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. I'm coming soon. Jesus wants you to know and to see, listen, this will happen. This is not some pie in the sky dream of an ethereal future. This is the real new heavens and new earth that God has in store. So blessed are you if you hear this and obey. He's coming soon. So so let me ask you, if what you long for determines what you live for, what is it that you're longing for this morning? What is it that you deeply desire? What is it that you wish you had? And does it compare with this? Does it compare with this picture? This is what you're made to long for. This is to be the true object of your desires. A new heavens and a new earth in which God is worshipped, in which all the nations of the earth are represented in all of their redeemed glory, and where God dwells with his people. That's what you're made to long for. Is that what you're longing for? Or like C.S. Lewis observed, are you one of those people whose desires are just too weak. That you're settling for the stuff of this world, the broken, fallen treasures of this world instead of the renewed, beautiful kingdom of heaven. We've been saying all throughout Revelation that this book is a vision of the future that is to shape our living in the present. If this vision of the good life captures you, if this really becomes what you desire and what you are living toward and what you're, the direction in which your life is oriented, it will change your living in the present. Let me describe a few of the ways that this vision of the future changes how we live now. First of all, if this really is your vision of the good life, you'll live in this world in an open-handed kind of way. Look, if you believe this world is what there is, and this life is as good as it gets, then you will live the life that you live in this world with clenched fists. 
Because you better hang on to everything you get. You better enjoy every experience. You better live for it while you can because there's no guarantee of anything else. So you'll live a very selfish, close-handed, clingy kind of existence. But if you really believe that new heavens, new earth, that it's going to be better than you could ever imagine the world that God has in store, and if you really know that all the pleasures this world has to offer are merely shadows of what is to come, you'll live in a really open-handed way. Meaning, you'll be free to enjoy good food and good wine and good friendship and the pleasures and blessings this world has to offer. But not in a stingy way, not in a selfish way. Rather, in a generous way. In a way that worships God and is generous and open-handed with others. You'll live life in an open-handed kind of way because this isn't what you're living for. So you'll be like the people in the Bible who enjoyed the good gifts that God gave, but who did so with a great, generous kind of a spirit. You'll be able to live like Job, who when God takes everything away, says, well, I have God. Whether I have everything or nothing, a better world is in store. You'll be like Abraham, who the writer of Hebrews says, was looking for a city that is to come, and that's why he was able to leave his city and journey to the place God showed him. You'll live open-handedly in this world. Secondly, if this vision of the future really grabs a hold of you, you'll right now long to make disciples. You'll long for people to know the God who is bringing this new world and to be a part of his people. You won't be passive about sharing the gospel and praying for people and longing for people to know Jesus. And it won't be in sort of a real weird, get them on my team, get them to come onto our side kind of a way. It will be with a true longing that, man, if this is the world God has in store, I want people to know this and experience this. I want them to know the pleasures of life with God and life in God's kingdom rather than the terrors of the lake of fire, which is reserved for those who deny him. You'll long to make disciples if this vision really captivates you. And finally, if this vision of the good life really grabs a hold of you, you'll long for the Lord Jesus to come. Your longing will be, yes, Lord Jesus, come and make this a reality. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, it won't be a rote religious exercise. When you say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that will be out of a true longing for that to actually take place. Yes, God, bring a new kingdom, a new heavens, and a new earth, because this one kind of sucks. This one's really broken. This one isn't what you intended for it to be. So come and bring your kingdom. You will say with John, I mean, look at the end of Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things, that's Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. And then John writes, amen, come Lord Jesus. It's like he's writing this down and Jesus says, hey, I'm coming soon. And he just, he says, yes, amen, I hope you do. Come Lord Jesus. If this vision of the good life really captures you, you will long for Jesus to come back and for this to be a reality. You won't be one of those people that sort of grabs onto this world and says, well, I guess heaven's good. I don't know what it's like. I don't really want it to come because this life's pretty good. You'll be one of those people that longs for new heavens, new earth, and for the kingdom of God because it means the curse of sin and death will be removed. 
means your aching and longing to know God and to be restored to God will be fulfilled. It means King Jesus will reign and rule on earth as he does in heaven. This is what you were made to long for. Let's pray that God would awaken that longing in us. Lord Jesus, we confess with C.S. Lewis that we are half-hearted creatures. That we very easily settle for the foolish and temporary pleasures of this world. And we miss the fact that they are merely shadows that are intended to point us toward the true and beautiful world that you are bringing. God, we long to be a people who live purposefully in this world, who who aren't otherworldly in our thinking, who aren't disconnected from our city and from our world, but rather connected deeply to it because we long to see redemption, restoration, consummation. And so I pray that this vision that we see in the book of Revelation would would not make us pull out of the world and just hope that you come and bring a different one but rather that it would drive us to worship and service and joy and mercy in the world for the good of the people who live around us, that they might be awakened to what they're intended to long for, that we might see your kingdom come in fuller measure, even though we know that we do not bring your kingdom, but you bring it. So God, would you help us to be a people that have a vision for our city that's as big as your vision? And at the same time, a hope and a longing for the coming of your new city, for your return, for the new heavens and the new earth and all that that means for your people. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.